0: Bryn Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision Tear Science, and Aerie. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming.
1: Uh, today continues New Retina Radio's global coverage of COVID-19. Uh, we're pleased to be joined by friends and colleagues from Europe. Uh, today, we have Dr. Ramin Terrione from Paris, uh, Dr. Jordi Monas from Barcelona, Spain, and Dr. Stano Rizzo from Italy. Uh, they're here to share their experiences on caring for patients with coronavirus COVID-19 and how things are evolving in their country. Uh, We know that Italy, uh, Stano, is ahead of us in terms of being on the curve for COVID-19 disease. Uh, Spain is catching up, and unfortunately, uh, uh, France as well. Stano, why don't you tell us a little bit of of the state of what's going on uh, in Rome, in Italy in general, and then maybe uh, what's happening in your clinics?
2: So I don't want to talk about the situation in Italy because I think you know everything about Italy is every, every day on the newspaper, on TV, radio, there's news, bad news by Italy. But I'd like to explain our situation as a doctor, first of all, as a you know that in Italy most retinologists work in public hospitals. There are, we have a few private centers for retinal patients. Well, the big public hospitals have all turned into COVID-19 hospitals. All the energies have been concentrated in the battle against this terrible enemy, invisible enemy. And our departments, also my departments, have turned into department for infected patients. Our anesthesiologist, our my, my department anesthesiologist, is engaged for most of the. Time intensive care, some of my two of my OR, my ophthalmic operating room, have been transformed into intensive care beds because, of course, we need the beds for intensive care. In addition, after a few days, after the start of the pandemic, orders came from the government that established that visit and the active surgery to be suspended in all specialties, of course, also in ophthalmology. So some weeks ago, we were thinking how we could uh, give safety for patients and operators, of course, in the largest hospital, our, has my hospital full of infections. So this was the, the decision. In Rome, we had two Completely separate paths, one dedicated to nineteen positive COVID patients, with an operating room. Of course, I share this this room with other specialties. For example, uh, to, today I operate total detachment in COVID nineteen affected patients after two bone fractures, and, this, and another for uninfected patients. So also the patient is. Uh, reassured to to have a, a good a good care in in non-infect pathway. Remember, it's I think this for at least for us for Italian hospitals, for Italian ophthalmology, starting again after this storm will be very difficult because the patients will be very suspicious to come to the to these hospitals. So but the problem is uh, how you can determine the uh, which path the patients should take, of course, because if you have symptomatic patients, it's very simple to identify with patients with fever, with cough, of course. But the problem is, of course, is uh, the asymptomatic patients. These are the are very dangerous uh, people, because of course they can spray the virus without any symptoms. So this, the secret is to do the tests. So now for this reason, all patients who need need, uh, in Italy, at least in Rome, surgical or parasurgical intervention or perform in our hospital undergo tests for coronavirus. In three hours, we have the results of the test, and then we decide what what conduct to adopt, which pathway has to take the patient. And moreover, it's also important for legal problem, every patient, for us, us to see, sign an information document in which he certifies that he's aware that the, the clinic, the, the, the surgery cannot be postponed because the, the eye is in bad condition, the condition is sight-treated. This is very important because of course, if the, the patient takes the infection in hospital after maybe the injection or after some, 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 of course some therapy, can be a, a legal problem in,
1: in the next future. So you, you've given us a little bit of a, a look down the line in a com- country with advanced disease and in the operating room. Let me shift a little bit to uh, personal protective uh, equipment um, in what you do in the operating room. And I'll also ask Ramin and Jordi to, to, to speak to this there's no consensus, and even if there was consensus, in many regions there's restrictions and limitations on the ability to get masks, types N95 masks, caps, gowns, gloves. Stano, what, what, are, your, what are your surgical suite protective gear, and how does that differ from your clinic? Then I'll ask the others as well.
2: Oh, Usually I wear N95 mask, and the surgical mask over 95 mask. You change the surgical mask, every patient I'm visiting, every patient I'm operating. So, and of course, I, I wearing also some helmet, but it's difficult to, uh, fortunately we have a 3D screen, a 3D screen, the digital, the digital vision, vision is, is better because of course using the Microsoft with the, with the, the mask is difficult to, to breathe. Because the, micros- the microscope became the, became cloudy, you know. But using the 3D technology is better because of course you can see better. Of course, you know you have you, you, you have some fog on your on your glasses, or your mask. This is my typical behavior with with infected. But of course, you have my my behavior always the same because we are very suspicious about also asymptomatic patients. Because these are the most the most dangerous patients. Because of course we, we don't know they are infected. Back to the
1: Jordy, what uh, what is your per, uh, protective equipment in the clinic versus in the operating room, and do you, do you presume everyone's uh, COVID positive?
3: Yes, uh, and and we do it two directions because. Uh, well, in Spain, we, we take off, when the curve takes off, it becomes mad, crazy. And so now we have 10,000 deaths and 1,100 infected. We're close to Italy. And we only have been able, maybe now, to slow down the curve, since we have had almost three weeks of complete lockdown. So shut, shut down everything. So my practice, as anyone, has been shut down. So. Almost all my specialties and my colleagues, plastic, cornea, glaucoma, all these patients are not being seen. And I only see those medical retina cases, those AMD patients that are at risk of losing vision. So by definition, this is a very high risk population. And it's not only that they can infect us, it's that we could infect them. So when we take measures at our practice, We almost care more for them because we know they're very weak, they're very old, and they have a very high chance of dying. So it's a very difficult and responsible triage to decide. Uh, I decide by home, by myself, uh, at home remotely, which patients should come, considering the behavior of the CMB, considering the fellow eye status, considering many things. So when patients are at risk of losing vision because of CMB, we call them and we only visit these patients and we visit them apart. Uh, we don't put them together. Whenever they enter into the door, we mask them if they don't have the mask. Uh, we make them wear gloves and wash their gloves. Uh, we, the team, the personnel, for many weeks already, we have been uh, with masks. I also use two masks, one FFG2 with valve and then a mask, a surgical mask over. Uh, we minimize the personnel in the clinic. We don't get closer. We all, of course, we all wear masks. We minimize the test and we just treat those patients with exudative and we put in the scale, the risk of getting, being infected by the risk of, of losing vision. We disinfect uh, all the surfaces every, after every patient and we are extremely obsessive because we, we are aware that these patients are very weak. How about you, Ramin?
4: Uh, quite similar to what has been said so we have regulations about what we should do and not do including doing the only emergency or very cases that really need treatment we also change the waiting room so our policy is a zero waiting time for any patient a patient should not wait come and go and still they should be a few meters apart there is ventilation uh, everything sterilized between two patients and the doctors have masks Patients that have any risk also have masks. In some area like intravitreal injection, everyone has masks. Patients like that So um, there is a limited number of um, N95 or FFP2, as it's called in Europe, masks. So this is mainly used for very close interaction with the patient or if the, if the patient is suspected of uh, being a COVID positive. Um, not all patients, but it's considered usually that if you have both of the doctor and the patient have a mask, even a surgical mask, and quite uh, separated, that should be okay. Uh, on the sleep lamps, we added a shield, a transparent shield, to, because that's the time you go close to the patient. So actually, we made it ourselves. It's quite easy to, to, to make. Um, so what, what else? In the OR, there is also rules for, for general anesthesia, because that's the time everyone could be infected. So there's there many rules to, to respect, but we have national rules, regional rules, and all of, all of this, as you say, it's a sweet spot be, between the risk and what's available in the country as a mask and other equipment to find who should use it in the right way to decrease the infection as much as possible. We learned a lot from our Italian colleagues because we are two weeks apart, I think so, I think the situation in Italy and in Spain is uh, much more difficult because they were ahead of us, and we learned a little bit more, and Northern Europe, they learn even more because they have their experience, our experience, and I hope in US, we will also use this experience to have less cases than in, in Europe.
3: Oh, uh, sorry, one thing uh, that we, I forgot, we use goggles too, uh, the personnel, be- uh yeah we, uh, not to patients the patients use masks but yeah we all use goggles because if any one of us becomes sick uh we'll not be able to treat any more patients we'll need to be all in quarantine so we protect much ourselves thinking that it's the way that we can still treat patients yeah
1: so let's talk about the affected healthcare care worker there are different ideas on what to do But the CDC has recommended that if a healthcare worker tests positive, that they can return after being three days afebrile or at least seven days from the initiation of their symptoms. This is a more liberal criteria than what the WHO recommends, which is a longer duration because of that idea of the viremia still being persisting out to 21 days after the initiation of symptoms. Tell me about what you what you do when you have someone to test positive, and when when can they come back to provide
3: care? It's two weeks after the end of symptoms. Uh, the, the people say, and if they, they are in quarantine because they've been in contact, so if they're contacts, they are for two weeks too in quarantine. How About negative testing to get back. Uh, if you have been in contact, I think that they, you wait fourteen days. Yeah.
4: So in, in France, we follow the rules and they change by time to time, but it's quite close to what CDC recommends. But there is two different points. One is that doctors and health caregivers are needed in the hospital. So that's why after one week, you are allowed to come back, but you are still considered having a risk to, to have the virus. So you have to cover your head, your clothes, and also your mouth by, by the mask not go too close to risky patient and things like this, but still you can help in some areas. Um, the situation is different for people who are not doctors and healthcare givers. Um, when they are not necessary to, to be on, on, on their work, it's recommended to be three weeks uh, out of work because as it has been said, the, the, the number of virus you are treating is decreasing with time but still it's present up to three weeks. So it depends what risk you want to take and how sure you are people will be able to wear a mask properly and take care of others. So the rules are maybe different from different people.
1: I know. how about, how about in uh, Roma where, where you've had maybe the most affected healthcare workers?
2: So uh, of course we are, we are always in contact, every day in contact with positive patients. So. Uh, at least for health workers, so if you are not if you not simple, you have to continue to work. But of course, I had I, I two my nurse nurses, uh, two my coworkers, positive virus, and I received the test after one week, and it was negative. I received another test after another week, and and it was also negative, fortunately. So. Uh, it's impossible to 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 receive tests, but I, at least in some region they start in in, in the Lombardia and Veneto. They start to give the test to all doctors, to all nurses, and maybe this can be a, a because we are. I think we are the readers of of the, the the illness because of course the hospital is is full of, of infected people.
1: In in New York City. Uh, mm-hmm at one department, all nine of the attending ophthalmologists uh, or the majority of them have been reassigned to general emergency room care, employee health. The nurses from the eye teams have been reassigned to intensive care units because of the New York City crisis. Um, The residents uh, have In manning the eye emergency room, but it's a reassignment of people uh, to deal with the medical crisis from those that were formerly in ophthalmology. It's something that we hope doesn't happen here. I suspect it has happened to some extent in in some of your countries, Uh, and it also speaks to the limitations on resources for protective equipment for people that are that are doing now high-risk care, maybe positive patients. In my own practice, we've had a lot of discussion about what's the right mask, surgical mask, regular surgical versus N95. And in light of limited resources, how do you keep those masks going? Can you sterilize them? Does anyone want to talk about the ability to reuse masks or to sanitize them?
4: Um. So in France, we have yet enough of masks. So everyone at the hospital is provided at least two masks per day. So you are supposed to change at lunchtime. So you have one for the morning, one for the evening. That's the minimum. Um, So we don't sanitize them. And um, I don't know. I know that there is some discussion to do this, but until now we have enough not to go in this way, but maybe one day if we don't have enough, I don't know.
1: How about you, Jordy?
3: Well, unfortunately, the reality is that uh, supposedly everyone has uh, enough protective wear in the in the public hospitals, but this is it varies region to region, center to center, uh, all all, uh, all patient uh, residencies. So there are many many uh, health practitioners that are not protected. and they're fighting a war unprotected and and this is being an issue and and we probably have the most, the highest proportion of healthcare personnel infected. Now I think we have uh, increased, uh, so we have, uh, we are more than Italy and because many of them are under protected. It's it's not because of of, uh, negligence, it's because it's very difficult to get massive quantities of, of masks and now we're Having planes coming from China with millions of masks, and daily there's material is coming, but the the uh, um, renewing the material has been an issue, and and the the the, provi- the provisioning has been also difficult by some areas. So the reality is that many many doctors and and health personnel have been unprotected in the fr- in the front line.
1: Yes, so. <clears throat> Let's talk about the types of patients that you are seeing in your clinic. Uh, For example, here uh, in my personal practice in Philadelphia, we have a, a large group retina practice. We're seeing medically essential patients, those that need injections. Mostly, most of the clinic is now injections and emergency surgeries or urgent surgeries. This is a little bit of a gray line uh, is a, for example, someone with diabetic macular edema who go- needs an injection that is scheduled, do you try and push them off? Obviously, a patient with wet macular degeneration is a little bit more urgent, arguably. A one-eyed patient. Give us some some sense of how you're restricting the numbers of patients and what constitutes uh, medically essential
3: and urgent. Jordy. Okay, I would say that Gaining one week, two weeks, three weeks matters a lot because now, since we are in the down, maybe we're entering closely into the down, the down shift of the, of the curve. If I reschedule a patient three weeks later, maybe the risk of getting infected by uh, moving from their home is going to be less than right now. So, for example, I remember a case of edema. I knew she would recur, I knew she would lose vision, but I, I could give her an additional month. So give, giving her an additional month is gonna not lose them that much and st- and maybe the risk will be much lower in a month. So, and the same I do for wet AMD, I, I see the charts, I know very well the behavior of my patients. Of course, if they got the first injection and they're one month after, of course we treat them. But if the patient has been treated for many injections, I can tell, I can forecast w- what is gonna be the behavior of the of the disease. And depending on the vision, if the eye is uh, uh, unique or not, we do the treatment or we postpone two weeks, three weeks, one month. We play, we we can't, uh, we we try to make this kind of deal, uh, but we don't, I don't think we, we have the right neither. And I disclose that to my patients. Look, if I protect you for not coming and not getting infected, I will be sentenced to lose vision. And I don't think that's correct. And my patients are, are appreciated and they're very thankful that we're still caring for them. So it's a very responsible triage. It's a very responsible uh, decision who has to come and who has not and we try to do it in our best judgment.
1: I wanna let the audience know we have, you know, maybe close to 100 attendees that they can, <clears throat> if they're on Zoom, they can chat a question uh, on on this that we can consider addressing. So. Ramin, how about you for for surgeries? What kind of cases constitute the the surgeries that you take to the operating room versus those that are not going?
4: As As you said, we by by law we don't have to, we should not do any cases that is not emergency or needing um, really treatment. So we in the department we organize the meetings all together by by far I mean teleconference, but also some of them in the, in the same place to discuss this issue, to have some consensus. So actually Euretina is going to publish consensus from different parts of Europe, people who have worked on this on his website. So you, you will have the full details how we did it. But then we go back to, the, uh, to each patient and make an individualized decision. But basically the rule is the patient should stay as short as possible in the department. So in a treatment extent it's transformed on fixed regimen based on the last interval which was okay. Uh, DMEs, most of them they can stay with no treatment up to 10 weeks but of course it's one eye that division decreases when there is a recurrence we talk to the patient, talk with him because we should not forget that diabetes patients are also those who are at risk of several forms. So this is a discussion to have with the patient and then we put on the chart that we had the discussion and what the decision was. For surgery cases, uh, we do just emergency cases, cases that could wait, as Georgie said, even if it can wait for three weeks, it's good to wait for three weeks because now we are at the peak and this is the most, the highest risk probably, it will decrease hopefully with time. So we try also to use as less as possible, the uh, nurses, the anesthesiologists, so they can do something else. And also many of us are voluntary uh, in other departments to help. So. We decree to protect the patient, to protect the staff, but also being able to help in other areas that are needed. So, in detail, we really have five pages of consensus in the department for each kind of situation intravitreal injection, uh, laser, uh, surgery, uh, clinics. And we we are going to translate it in English to to have it in the retina website at the end of the week.
1: I want to uh, ask a question that's coming from the audience. Uh, is anyone taking uh, prophylaxis uh, for themselves, or are or healthcare workers taking Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine prophylaxis, uh, considering the limited data that's out there?
4: May I comment? So. This has been proposed by a professor in Marseille and he in France and he's a very knowledgeable and I think it's a good piece to to work on it. There are several clinical trials right now in France in different stages. And in a few weeks, we will have some results of this randomized trial clinical trial. But at the same time, people should know that there is risk to take these drugs, and in particular cardiac risk. And there has been people who died because they didn't know that there is a risk. They take the full dose and trying not having the uh, COVID. They die from cardiac arrest and other issues. So I think this is something to do under control. These drugs are usually safe, but there is some side effects in someone. And there is no proof uh, today that it's uh, useful as a prophylaxis. So it should not allow anyone to not taking a mask or doing whatever he wants because he thinks that he's taking Plaquenil or whatever
2: yeah, no. Sure, no, no, no. Uh, only vitamin C, orange juice. We don't know, we don't have, have prophylaxis therapy. We don't take to anything.
3: Jordi? No, and, and no, we don't. And I think it's rest- restricted not only for hospitals. You cannot buy it in your own pharmacy. You cannot buy it anymore. So, otherwise it will get uh, extinguished in, in, in nothing. So it's, it's kept for, mm-hmm. for patients.
1: Okay. I want to bring us um, not to the close yet, but I want to talk about one more thing. And that is, we talked about surgery. We talked about the desire to keep patients away. Um, Are your departments doing any teleophthalmology, telehealth initiatives currently? It's difficult to do it for retina patients, but maybe post-operative patients, maybe they come in one day later, but you do a, a phone call or a, a virtual visit or a Skype with them for one week. What are you doing? Is anyone
3: doing anything with that? I think the audience is interested. We call them and if they're in in those cases which are borderline, uh, for example for AMD, uh, it depends on their symptoms if we gain one week or more. So uh, some cases which are borderline, we decide on their symptoms if we make them uh, come back and not. And other things that any other things on uh, retina we try to handle by WhatsApp, and, and pictures and and, and talks: Ramin? Many many dividers seen by WhatsApp these days How about you Ramin? yeah we we, we
4: call I' would say um, half a day, each of us is just on phone with patients. Um, to, to, to explain them or to uh, ask if they have symptoms, make a teleconsultation. Unfortunately, in ophthalmology, Skype or seeing the patient doesn't help usually uh, because you need to, to have an OCT or retinal photos, and this is not possible. But Paris University Hospital has a quite efficient um, teleconsultation uh, possibilities for other doctors that want to see the patients because also there is a um, security issue because you have to use uh, a means that are supposed to be secured for medical communication. So for us ophthalmologists, telephone is usually enough. Um, we can't really have much more. We already had a screening program by teleconsultation, but the screening is tough because there is no justification the patient to come to a camera or somewhere it's right now in emergency.
1: I want to uh, wrap this up and and thank our speakers, thank our sponsors for this. I, you know, this situation is changing and very dynamic. And your expertise, particularly in the countries that are ahead of us, for example, here in the United States, at least in some areas, is very valuable. We'd like to continue this conversation uh, to get global perspectives and wanna thank uh, our sponsors and thank you individually and wish everyone well, stay healthy,
0: uh, your patients, and we all need you. Thank you very much. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision Tier Science, and Aerie. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications, LLC, herein BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to reliance on in this webcast podcast.